Hello, hello. I'm your host, Stephanie Martinez Rivera, and you are listening to the Joy Found Here podcast. I am obsessed with reminding my fellow mamas, queens, badass babes, ladies and girls that perfection is just a word, not a lifestyle. Multitasking is overrated. Comparison is a theft of happiness. And yes, you can put yourself first. Oh, and by the way, for optimum results, you should. I'm a New York girl from a small town, part-time badass, proud mama bear times three. I've seen 60 full turns of the sun. I've learned the importance of how kindness begins with you and your self-talk. Join us each week as we help you navigate both the messy and the magical season of this crazy ride called life. Real stories that remind us to reclaim your power. The sun does come out after the shitstorm. A good cry can be cleansing and We really don't know who sits on top of the mountain of judgment. Sit back, plug in, fill up your cup. This is your time. Remember, you've always had the power. Welcome to Joy Found Here. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. Another one today. Yes, you're welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Ron Ramsey. He is a relationship counselor, forgiveness expert, I want to know more about that, and the author. His book is called 40 Days to Forgiveness. It's such an interesting, hot topic, and one that I know for me, I know a lot of people where forgiveness is, they just get stuck. And I don't know why. And I don't know if I'm like too easy to forgive because I view life as life is short. If I'm mad, if you did me wrong, all right, let's either work through that and either you stay in my life or you don't. But I don't like to carry a lot of luggage. With that said, I can't wait to hear all about him And so thank you, thank you, thank you, Ron, for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, let's start with, tell us about you anywhere you'd like to start. Well, I worked for 25 years in the field of organization development. I did leadership training. My last job was with Chrysler in their health and safety department, training leaders how to manage health and safety. I got out of that, and for the first year of retirement, I didn't do much. And then my wife said, find something to do. (laughs) Wise woman. (laughs) The best advice I ever got. So I went back to school and got my doctorate in marriage and family therapy. Did that for eight years, and then I thought about wanting to do something else to fill my time. So I got interested in chaplaincy and went through a four-year Well, it wasn't really four years. It was about a three-year training program to be a hospital chaplain. So today I do that. I'm a hospital chaplain for one of our larger hospitals here in the Detroit area. And I still do marriage counseling. I've cut back on that to give more time for the chaplain work. So that's me. A few things that I love about this is you had a career where you were I was this and I was that. And then maybe it was good that you took all that time to 
do air quotes nothing after retiring. I find sometimes people, you know, you need to let me jump off of this to jump into that. And you're not quite sure if even that's the right move, but you really gave yourself so much time and space. And now look, you're, you jumped into three or four new endeavors, which I absolutely love. Well, I didn't actually do nothing. I shot a documentary film. I use, I use the air quotes. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm the one that's done nothing. I, I shot a documentary film about, the cheer team at my daughter's high school. Oh, fun. They won more state championships than any other team in any sport. And I thought the story needed to be told. And uh, I was a stay-at-home dad. And I joined a men's uh, photography group. Well, it wasn't all men, but mostly guys. And we would go out and take pictures of different things because I love photography. And then that all, I realized how hollow all of that was, how purposeless, I felt. So when my wife said find something to do, what she really meant was you need to get a purpose for your life. You can't just keep floating along in the stream like a leaf. Yeah, you needed someone or something to serve. Yes. Yes, my mom was a chaplain. Oh, okay. Oh, that was kind of in the back of my mind as something to do. And I like being in hospitals. People think I'm crazy when I say that, but I had open heart surgery when I was six. So hospitals have always been a part of my life and I'm not afraid of them. And, you know, I feel totally comfortable walking into anybody's room and sitting down and talking with them. So hospital work is a natural fit for me. So I will tell you from the receiving end of chaplains, growing up, my mother was always sick and in a hospital. She, she too had uh, open heart surgery. She had two of them when she was in her late 30s and then mid 40s, a thousand years ago. She left us 37 years ago. So as a kid, I was always in hospitals at the time. And yes, the chaplains would come quite often then. And then more recently, because I then as an adult outside of having three children, never was in a hospital until probably eight years ago when I broke my ankle and found myself in a very foreign place. Like, how did I even get here? And yeah, the chaplains came often because I was in for a week and it really helped me at the time And more recently, like three years ago, when my mother-in-law was passing, we had the most beautiful visit, sorry, from the chaplain. And he just prayed over her. And it was just everything that we needed at the time. So I'll gather myself. (laughs) Um, Thank you, is what I want to say. Okay. I'm glad that some people could come and help you find peace. Yeah, yeah. So you're doing that, and then you're doing the marriage counseling. And at what point does the idea for the book, the subject for the book, come around? Well, in a doctoral program, you have to, at the end of the program, after all your coursework, you have to write, do research. They want you to research something that will contribute to the body of knowledge in your field. So I thought about writing about family resilience, 
And then I got to thinking one of the things that breaks down the fabric of families is unforgiveness. And I wanted to do something that would have an impact on the church. And unforgiveness is a very common experience for people. So I chose to write about, well, my, my dissertation topic was, can we learn to forgive? And if we can, what are the things that help us learn to forgive? So that was what I studied. That was my research. What were some of your findings? I mean, there were some big things that can go wrong in the level or the timing, if it ever does happen, uh, forgiveness either can or cannot come. And then there's, or do you find that there's so many different levels where some people are like, so she didn't like your cake and that's why you're mad at her for all these years. I mean, it goes from minute to, oof, okay, that was a biggie. Well, there are different levels of unforgiveness. I'll get into talking about that a little more detail in a minute. But one of the key things I found right up front is that there are varieties of unforgiveness that we carry. There's divine unforgiveness where we get mad at God and we hold a grudge against him. There's self-forgiveness, unforgiveness, where we let go of regrets that we have in our own life towards ourselves. And then there's relational unforgiveness, which is where I spend my focus on my topic. So in relational unforgiveness, we experience a transgression which makes us feel threatened in some way. And that threat evokes emotional response. And the emotional response usually is centered around feeling that we haven't been treated in a way that we feel we deserve to be treated. I call those unenforceable rules because we all walk around with rules for how we want to be treated. And one of the first things to realize in forgiveness is we can't enforce the rules for how other people treat us. So we try to cope with that. And when we're able to cope, we don't get into a state of unforgiveness, usually. But when we're not able to cope, we develop an ambiguous narrative about what happened to us. We start to try to reduce the unforgiveness about how we're feeling about the person and the experience that we've had. That leads us to negative well-being and negative intentions. And those negative intentions feed back into our narrative, and the narrative begins to grow and becomes more difficult to reduce the feelings around that narrative. And we get into a vicious cycle of rumination. And that's really what unforgiveness is. It's where we're ruminating about some way that we've been treated that violates our expectations for how people treat us. So interesting the way that you broke it out. And even using the word expectation, which is always almost a guarantee for disappointment, if not more. I always say, keep your bar on the floor, and then this way uh, you'll always be surprised. So how does one, if someone is stuck in the vicious cycle, and usually our mind is so good at the story that has played over and over, and perhaps it changes the details 
as you know it, maybe things might even get a little more embellished. How does one finally say, this is exhausting, this isn't working, how can I get past this? What would be an initial step or perhaps the initial step is knowing that that's the block? What I came up with in my study is that there's a series of things that happen to get us from feeling blocked and stuck to feeling forgiveness. And the first step in that process is to acknowledge what's happened to us. I mean, obviously, we realize that something's happened. But at a deeper level, how has it affected us? How is it affecting our thinking, our feelings, how we're treating other people? who maybe have nothing to do with how we were treated, but we think they may treat us the same way. So acknowledging, but before the transition point that needs to happen before we can move towards a state of forgiveness is commitment. And all of the research that I read about forgiveness says that unless we make a commitment to try to forgive, we're probably not going to be able to forgive. And so that's kind of step one. And as Christians, we're commanded to forgive, which is not a good reason to do it, because when we do it on obligation, I think we don't have a thorough experience. We're doing it because somebody told us to. God wants us to forgive because that's how we reconcile with people, and that's how we maintain peace with all people. Jesus said, as much as it's up to you, try to live at peace with all men. So you have to acknowledge this isn't working. You know, it's just either I've, your history shows, I think if you took a step back and looked and looked behind to be like, hey, I'm not really liking where I'm at right now. What in the world? Oh, I'm the common denominator. So why do I always act like this? Or why do I have this wall up that I think, this very nice person who I just met is going to wrong me the way I've been wronged. Is that something that's common in, Stephanie, you've got some crap that you're carrying around and you need to acknowledge, as you say, that. First of all, let me say, Jesus didn't say as much as you can live at peace with all people. That was Paul. I misspoke. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, There's a number of reasons why somebody may make a decision to forgive. But what I believe is that if you have a process, it's easier to move towards forgiveness. It's easier to take the first steps because you know what the process is that you're trying to follow. So the process I came up with, the first letter of each step in the process spells the word action. So I already talked about the A, which is acknowledging, and the C, which is committing. But the T is realizing that we need to transition from negative intentions towards somebody else to positive intentions, positive ways of thinking about them, which may include things like praying for them, having well wishes towards them. We're told that if you meet somebody that's cold and needs a coat, give them your coat. If they need water, give them some water. So positive intentions towards other people is sort of at the heart of how Jesus operated. And as Christians who are trying to emulate Jesus, it's at the heart of how we operate. 
So transitioning from those negative thoughts to positive thoughts is sort of a first step. And those steps might be a little different depending on whether you're a person who has sort of an unforgiving nature versus a person who's been wronged in some way and you have a specific episode of unforgiveness that you're trying to deal with. Those could have a little different impact on how you transition. But transitioning is the next step. The I stands for internalization. Internalizing what's happened to you means working on your spiritual maturity, filtering what's happened to you through the lens of meditation, prayer, scripture study, and fellowship. Those are the four things that I believe lead to spiritual maturity. And when we're spiritually mature, we're not going to be unforgiving towards other people. The two don't go together. They're mutually exclusive. Being spiritually mature means being a forgiving person. And the O means open, uh, being open to a changed heart, not a wooden heart, but a changed heart. What happens when we're unforgiving is Satan builds up a barrier around our heart. Uh, Paul calls it a stronghold. And what happens is that stronghold keeps in the Spirit of God that's living within our heart, the Holy Spirit. And that spirit can't get out when the stronghold is preventing us from showing our true nature. And a stronghold can be things like excessive thoughts about getting even and vengeance and rehearsing ways that you would like to talk to the person or that you wish you would have talked to the person. Those all create strongholds. So we have to be open to letting the Spirit of Christ come out of us, which means breaking down the strongholds that are keeping him inside. And then the last step in the process is nurturing what's happened to us, nurturing our changed heart and keeping it going, because forgiving is not forgetting. Once you've experienced something, you can't unexperience it. So you're going to carry the thoughts about that with you the rest of your days. And something may happen to you to trigger all of those negative thoughts and that negative narrative. So unless we nurture our spiritual maturity and we nurture our openness to let the Spirit of Christ out of our heart, we could fall back into the same trap. We could fall back into the same feelings of unforgiveness again. That's what the letters of action stand for. That's the process or the steps in unforgiveness. And of course, in my book, 40 Days to Unforgiveness, I go into more detail on those things. And I also provide worksheets that help people to walk through each of the steps in the unforgiveness process. I love any word broken down because it does definitely make it so easy to learn and then remember those, in your case, action steps. I like that a lot. Showing compassion or praying for others, as you stated earlier, if you're mad at someone, and I do find that just praying for someone is just so much easier than let me feel all of this, which nine times out of 10, usually the person who has done whatever to me might not have any idea what they've done and how they've made me feel. And they go on their daily life 
happy, carefree, and I'm carrying this big grudge that they have no idea about. It's wonderful to know that there are so many steps available. So talk to me a little more about some coping styles. Well, there's two categories of coping styles. One is active coping style and the other is avoidant. Each of those coping styles has three components to it. One is a problem-focused component. We can cope with things by focusing on the problem, researching solutions, generating ideas for how to solve the problem, reviewing the concerns, and so forth. The second is being emotionally focused, which means seeking support, crying, empathizing, mindfulness, meditation, prayer, yoga, are all emotionally focused, active coping styles. And then meaning-focused, which is where we reframe the problem, look at it from different points of view, and we adjust our expectations based on what they mean to us. But avoidant coping styles are where we try to solve a problem by not focusing directly on the problem, disregarding the threat, talking with others, trivializing the threat, or self-blaming, fear and anger, uh, diversions, like diverting ourselves to watching movies or hobbies or recreation, trying to avoid, or drinking or taking drugs or gambling. Those are negative, emotionally focused coping styles. And meeting focus, avoided styles, has to do with things like denial, posting on social media, our narrative, trying to get people to see our point of view and side with us. Those are avoided meaning-focused styles. That's sort of the framework for what coping is all about. I have a little survey in the book that helps people go through and identify what their most common coping style is when they are encountered with a difficult situation. That would be interesting because I'm sure, although I did hear myself in some of the description and I won't take to social media, but I might rant and I might avoid. I'm a, what is it? uh, Fight or flight. I'm a flight. Yeah. I'm out usually. So also in your book, I know that you talk about the unforgiveness life cycle. What does that look like? Yeah, that's what I went through at the beginning of our talk. That's where we experience a transgression that triggers emotions, that triggers our feelings of unenforceable rules being violated, not being able to cope, developing a negative narrative, attempting to reduce our unforgiveness and the rumination that comes with all of that. And then after learning about the different styles and how to I'll say cope. How does one know? How do you know then you've reached forgiveness, that you have forgiven that person for, I'll say, that action? And how do you know that, okay, I'm good now? Is it that I can face that person and just not be triggered or my heart's a little lighter? What happens? 
Well, I'm not sure that we ever totally get to a place where we feel we've totally forgiven. Okay, that's fair. But I believe that we can get to a place where we feel like we've forgiven enough. And that happens whenever we have changed our negative thought patterns, our negative intentions towards the other person, towards positive intentions and wishing well for them. And whenever we've filtered our unforgiveness through our spiritual maturity, our meditation, prayer, scripture study, and fellowship, whenever we filtered it through that, then we begin to realize that we can be forgiving towards another person in our mind. Another thing that's important to bear in mind is that forgiveness doesn't mean going to another person and saying, I forgive you. That's a position of power. That says to the other person, well, you did wrong, but that's okay. I'll forgive you. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something we do for ourselves. It's something that we do in changing our own thought process and our own ways of spinning the narrative that's in our mind. When we go to the other person, we're taking the first steps towards reconciliation. And what you might feel interest, might find interesting is that there are no examples of forgiveness in the Bible. The closest it comes is when Jacob tells his sons when he's on his deathbed to go and forgive your brother. And he tells them to do that after they've already reconciled with him. And I believe why there's no examples. I mean, Jesus tells some stories about forgiveness, but those aren't examples of actual unforgiveness. Jesus didn't actually forgive anybody for transgressing him directly. In fact, when he was on the cross, He asked the Father to forgive the people that put him there. He didn't actually say, I forgive them myself. And I believe the reason for that is because God has demonstrated the ultimate example of forgiveness for us. And if he started giving us little examples in the Bible, we would get focused in on those examples and not focused in on the big picture. We would lose the forest for the trees. The thing we're supposed to emulate, the thing we're supposed to copy is God's forgiveness for us. And his forgiveness is total and complete. So interesting. I absolutely love that. So you wrote this as part of your doctorate requirement, yes? Right. Okay. And the 40 days, is that a significant number, title? Does research show that? It's part of a cycle. If you stay intentful and really want to change the narrative and learn some new practices, is that representative of anything? Well, that's a good question. I, When I was writing my dissertation, I reached out to a Christian professor who is considered to be one of the foremost leading authorities on forgiveness. And I asked him what his thoughts were. And he said, well, when you write your book, or when you write your dissertation, remember that forgiveness doesn't happen quickly. Try and stretch the process out because it takes time. So I thought to myself, well, how far do you stretch it out? Well, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Moses watched it rain for 40 days. Yeah, 40 is kind of a biblical number. So it wasn't really arbitrary, but it's sort of It sort of was the number that I settled on that seemed to make the most sense. 
I didn't want forgiveness to seem like something that you could just read a book and all of a sudden you've forgiven someone. Sure. As soon as you're done, you're like, okay, so that was the last page. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So I forgive you. I like it only because it does show, let's say, the process for the progress. Right. So the way my book is designed is it's not actually a book that you sit down and read cover to cover. Each of the days, each of the sections in the book has a brief section that you read. And then there's a worksheet to help you apply what you just read. So I literally break it down into 40 steps. It's not necessarily 40 consecutive days, but it's 40 steps in the process. Because it is a process. Right. And it takes some commitment to get through it. It's definitely a process, but it's a process that can only lead to better. It can be, I'll say, liberating to heal yourself and work through the release in order to forgive. Right. It comes slowly. And going through my book is uh, not for the faint of heart. It's for people who truly have a difficult struggle that they're trying to get through. And they're willing to commit to the steps and the process to get through that struggle. It's a challenge. I should have named the book The 40-Day Challenge to Forgiveness. Or put that little warning, not for the faint of heart. Right. Yeah. So I want to thank you for this. I, I knew forgiveness. It's such a hot, not hot like everybody's talking about it, but I see how it can be so paralyzing to people. Like they just get stuck in quicksand because going back to your original statement, you know, how they have been wronged. And then as you hold on to that story and it grows with you, it just sometimes takes over. Yeah, it takes over your thought process. Yeah. So, I mean, the mindset, as you spoke of in a couple of the steps and the prayer and the meditation is so important because we believe our stories, I think maybe until someone might question it and said, you know, well, what makes that true? Because we're the only ones telling ourselves the story. Yeah. And as we tell ourselves the story, it takes on new a little bit more story every time we tell the story. It's a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the size of the fish was, you know, it was the 200-pound fish that got away. Yes. Right. Yeah. It definitely goes through a big growth spurt, not in a good way. And it takes a lot. And some people do wake up one day and just say, enough. I know I want better. I deserve better. Let me see how I could work on this to see what else is there since holding on to the anger. And, and all of that internally always affects not only your, your mental state, but it affects your body. It affects your overall health. And to be liberated just by what we might think is a one little thought or one little piece that may wind up being the proverbial thousand pound weight off of your back. It's um, 
And we don't have to live like that. Yeah, we can make a choice. We can make a choice. And I hope if you happen to know someone or if you yourself are in that struggle, and it's not for the faint of heart, as Ron has said, but, you know, if you find yourself there, tell us again the name of the book, please. It's 40 Days to Forgiveness, the Christian's Field Guide to the Unforgiveness Journey. It's available on Amazon, the world's biggest bookstore, and Barnes & Noble, as well as other places. So... I want everyone to know that this is a resource out there. Again, if it's not for you, you might know someone. But I love the field guide. I like that because it's a map. It can help. It can, you know, lay out some steps. And and he chose his words to spell action. And sometimes that's all it takes is the first step for a change. Yeah, I think people often think, Forgiveness is a feeling, and it's not. It's action. It's something that you can take control of. Love that. So that's a good place to drop the mic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ron, for being here and for talking about this topic, because, again, I think it's um, definitely will resonate. So with that, I want to say Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also, in addition to the book, can we find you on social media? Yes, I'm on pretty much all the social media platforms. I have a website, 40daystoforgiveness.com. I forget if you have to write the word 40 or put the number 40 in. And then on social media, where are they going to find you? What? Well, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think I'm on LinkedIn. It's one of those. I I think I'm on LinkedIn too. (laughs) It's like, I think I am. I'm not sure. We're everywhere. We will put that all in the show notes. And again, I appreciate your time. It was fun to learn about this. So I want to hear the comments because, you know, you're going to go to that website, joyfoundhere.com. You're going to tell us about it. Perhaps if you, again, know someone that might need a field guide, You're going to know where to go. You're going to look for Dr. Ron Ramsey's book. And until the next time, be well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already done so, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to head over to joyfoundhere.com for any questions, comments, and feedback. Until next week. Keep your head up and your crown straight. You've got this.